people will always know me for uh, liking a good story, and I think it's a an important part of a brand foundation is the ability to tell good stories. So when someone loses their way, it's almost always because they've lost their story. And when they regain their story, they will regain their way. That's a quote from my podcast guest today. And they are able to teach anyone to be more charismatic, compelling, and persuasive through a simple framework, the seven essential stories charismatic leaders tell. And even if you are a solopreneur running a small real estate business, you are still a leader. Um, and you're going to be, it's important for you to be able to tell stories that engage and interest your potential prospects, joint venture partners, uh, other people that you're going to do business with. So I think you're going to find today's uh, podcast episode really of interest to your business and how you can tell better stories. You're listening to the REI Branded Podcast, helping you build your real estate personal brand. If you want to stand out from the crowd, attract the right leads, right partners, and right clients every time, you're in the right place. My name is Paul Copcutter, and each week we'll be looking to decode and uncover what makes you, the real estate business owner, brandtastic. Each episode is intended to be valuable, cut to the chase, and actionable, so you can spend less time marketing your business and still get the results you want. Thank you for listening. Now let's get to work on making you brandtastic. Okay, and welcome to today's episode of the REI Branded Podcast. And I am very pleased to introduce you to my guest today, Kurian Tharakan. He's based in Edmonton and is the founder of sales and marketing strategy firm, Strategy Peak Sales and Marketing Advisors. Uh, he's got over 25 years of sales and marketing experience and is the author of the Amazon bestseller, The Seven Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell, which details how anyone can move people and mountains with the power of story. I'm really, really intrigued to hear this. Uh, he's consulted for companies in numerous sectors, including professional services, manufacturing, distribution, high-tech, software, non-for-profit, and the life sciences. And in addition to his consulting practice, he's also an executive in residence at the Business Accelerator Tech Edmonton, where he assists clients with their go-to-market strategy. Prior to Strategy Peak, um, Kurian was the Vice President of Sales and Marketing for an Alberta-based software firm, where his team achieved notable wins with several US Fortune 500 companies. So welcome, Kurian. Paul, thanks for having me on your show. Good to be Great. on a Canadian podcast. <laughs> Good, excellent. So let's kick off. What do you mean by the power of story? Well, story story is the only way humans can realistically and effectively communicate with each other. We create meaning through the stories we tell ourselves and we tell other people. Uh, we create communications only through the stories we tell. So facts by themselves are very boring until infused with meaning and then told in story form. And that's how you make it stick. And, and what happens when you make it stick is you get the response that you may want, right? But if it doesn't stick, you're not going to get any response at all. And it, does that come from, you know, when we were children and we were used to hearing stories and remembering th you know, things like Aesop's fables, you'd get a point across because of the story versus 
So our minds are ready for this? Or? Well, humans are, uh, human brains are exquisitely uh, wired to remember story. And it may come from uh, generation upon generation of sitting around campfires. You know, modern humans have perhaps been around for 200, 300, 400,000 years, something like that. Modern humans have. And, you know, in that time, we discovered fire a long time before that. But now we have a campfire to sit around and we relate stories to each other in order to to facilitate the culture. And culture, uh, the first half of my book is all about culture. And culture is always about the always-on operating system that guides behavior, even when there's someone, even when there's no one around to reward or punish that behavior. And culture's ultimate definition is the knowledge used to survive and thrive. So you can imagine that nomadic tribe, that nomadic band gathered on the tra- uh, campfire, and you have to pass along knowledge that will help that next generation uh, to uh, to learn the skills and to have the knowledge uh, to survive and thrive. Everything from don't go uh, don't go out to the uh, to the watering hole, you know, without having somebody on a lookup because there's crocodiles in there during this time. You know, it's all these kind of things, and you know, you can say that as a fact. But when you talk about Bob, who was eaten by that pack of hyenas down by the uh, by the watering hole, that tends to stick. And you need that lookout. Oh, yeah, better take a lookout when I'm going down the, to drink there. Right. And what's the most powerful story category you can tell to pers- persuade someone to get that message across? Well, in the book, we uh, detail seven uh, essential stories that all charismatic leaders use to move people on mountains, uh, to get people to do things they didn't even know were possible. So how does a Steve Jobs do that? How does an Elon Musk do that? Uh, Winston Churchill, how, how do these people, great leaders throughout history, what were they doing? And there's seven categories of story, and, but you, know, you don't tell all of them at one time, and then certain ones are more relevant than others. But there is a universal one that'll uh, capture most people's attention. And we call that story number five, which is all about the mighty winds. And the mighty winds is all about the macro trends in the environment. So we say that every organization, uh, every company is like a sailing ship and sailboats need wind to power the w- ship sails. But most people, uh, beginning entrepreneurs, beginning uh, leaders, they go out and build a ship without ever ascertaining the direction, availability, or power of the wind. So they may build a ship, the organization, they may build that ship totally inappropriate in design for the available winds. Uh, and so you not only have to ascertain the availability of that wind, but the direction. So the last thing you want to do is be counter to those macro trends. And the big macro trends are societal trends, technological trends, economic, environmental, political, and legislative trends. And when you when you map out where these trends are going, you want to make sure the ship you're building is not only on trend, right, but then fully available to capitalize on the available, uh, what is it, um, uh, tailwinds that will help power your uh, ship forward. So I can see, I can see the relevance, or I can imagine the audience seeing the relevance to that for the larger organizations. You know, like you mentioned, Steve Jobs, you know, like an, an Apple or a Tesla. A lot of people listening to this podcast are solopreneur or small business entrepreneur. How does that trans transform to? transform to them? How does it relate to them? 
Well, I, I think it's identical, you know, uh, so a large, now correct me if I'm wrong, Paul, but the large portion of your readership is also in the real estate industry as well. Yeah. Real estate investors, oh. real estate professionals or, or related Beautiful. professionals. Beautiful. So let me, let me tell you how that would work in the real estate industry. Let's say it's a developer of, uh, of whatever. Um, so in the 1950s, uh, the first shopping mall was uh, created. The indoor shopping mall uh, was created in, I believe, Minneapolis. And uh, that was a very novel thing at the time. And, you know, you didn't have to go outside, especially in Minneapolis. Can you imagine the weather in the middle of winter there? Not like Canada, but it's still pretty harsh. And um, now a very novel thing. And that created a shopping center boom that uh, went on for 40, 50 years. Now we're seeing the opposite thing happen where we're seeing, you know, these uh, relics of these old uh, shopping centers no one visits anymore. Still prime real estate, but the functional relevance, the emotional significance of that type of development has given way to other things. Uh, big box store uh, complexes, for example, more uh, high street type of uh, mer- uh, merchants. Uh, you know, there's a, online shopping has devastated the uh, future opportunities for a Kmart and a Cedars. And, uh, and Walmart's uh, been able to, uh, to survive it, but boy, did they have to scramble. Did they ever have to scramble? So all of those, the trends that are involved there are demographic trends because uh, shopping malls uh, really needed suburbs to come to its into its own. You know, if you if you think of it, of it that way, so there's a demographic aspect to it. Uh, there's a technological aspect to it to uh, to be able to uh, develop the technology. Not that it was su- super sophisticated to uh, make these shopping centers very efficient in the way they do are uh, constructed and the way they are designed. And those kinds of things, there's a variety of things that happen there. And now we're seeing counter trends to that. So the last thing I would want to be doing right now is building a new mega mall. Right. You know, and in, in 1980, whatever it was, West Edmonton Mall here was the biggest mall in the world. Well, I don't know if I want to be investing in the next biggest mall in the world, you know, but I would rather be investing in uh, where retail shoppers are congregating now. And we have to be on trend for that in order to, to get a return on investment, let alone be relevant. Right. And so w- when you're talking about, you know, the current, say the current real estate market, which is, you know, across Canada is booming, you know, it's a shortage of supply and, and the, you know, it's a cra- crazy kind of house prices. Are these the kind of things that, that if you're looking at your real estate business, you kind of maybe got to redesign that ship because of what's happening? You have to not only redesign what you've got, but you have to, uh, uh, you really have to build for 10 years ahead, 15 years ahead. So we've seen a, uh, there's a a clear demographic and psychographic shift now with young people uh, to not owning anything, (laughs) perhaps, right? And they certainly weren't of my generation where, you know, by your mid thirties, early forties, certainly you were uh, investing in real estate as your primary residence, you know, let alone any kind of investment properties. But uh, we've, we've seen uh, several towers go up in the Edmonton region that are strictly rental properties. And these are massive towers. You know, they're 35, 40 uh, stories tall. Uh, and uh, these, are, these are big complexes. Right? And they're small. You know, the average suite in these are like 600 feet, 700 feet, right? 800 feet, that kind of thing. And it, it reflects the, the new lifestyle of these. Uh, it's not even millennials anymore. It's the generation after, right? And uh, you, we have to be cognizant of where these marketplaces are going. Now, what does that imply for real estate pricing as a whole? 
So if these kids aren't getting into their first starter homes, new bills and things like that, does that imply stagnant real estate pricing for the rest of the market? You know, as the boomers are trying to get out and uh, get out of their, you know, big house and into a smaller house, maybe eventually into a condo, uh, are they going to be able to recoup the significant value in that business? But this is what these stories are telling you. So if you're, um, if you're a REIT, for example, uh, that is investing in these kind of things, you better have a good story around why you're investing in these apartment blocks versus the nursing homes. The nursing homes have a clear play for the next 25, 30 years. You know, that's a, that story is very believable. But if we're investing in brand new apartment bills, tell me what the story is, the meaning behind that story, and then why I should believe you. Or even uh, just thinking office blocks right now. I mean, how many people are actually going to go back and all of a sudden those towers are 40% of the time they're empty? Attractive investment opportunity. Yeah, absolutely correct. You know, my particular, uh, uh, like I'm a partner in a digital marketing agency here. We've taken our uh, office space down by 60%. So we're operating about 40, 45% of what we were operating in uh, pre-pandemic. Right. And, uh, you know, that's a that's a big hit uh, for these landlords that are used to having um, having gross ups of 15, 25% on usable square footage of, you know, whatever it is, 300 square feet, 350 square feet per executive in the office, right? Right. And uh, those economics don't work anymore. And yet I was, I was hearing, listening to something the other week, though, um, it was kind of maybe, well, it was too ambitious, perhaps, but like we work is now being viewed as possibly they may have a model that's going to work because you know we, we still want some office space some of the time we'd like to have a nice place to go we want some of the bells and whistles of a you know a different kind of space if we're going to invest that time and money in going there yeah so there's a whole story there about the future of the office and its role in demographics its role in society, in the psychographics involved in that, you know, and what its purpose is, not only socially, but commercially, right. you know, because there's a social purpose of this as well, of this as well, because we go to the, to work eight hours a day, whatever it is, seven hours a day, and it has to fulfill some social motives beyond the uh, commercial and economic motives that people have. And if it doesn't, then it becomes irrelevant. Hmm. So you really need to be thinking as you, as you've kind of highlighted, multi-dimensional to make that story believable and and engage people enough that they're going to believe it. Swallowing problem there. Okay, you're always in the storytelling business, and the business has to be believable in the process. Right. Okay. So, how do you create your own seven stories to move people on mountains, as you say in your book? Well, the book itself it will give you a clear template in order in order to do that. But ultimately, you know, the stories, let me just uh, outline what the stories are. Uh, story one is all about creation origin. What is the inciting incident that uh, forced you into this position or allowed you the inspiration to create the organization that you currently have? Story two is all about our identity, values, and beliefs. Who are we as people? What are our highest aspirations? What are the values that we absolutely aspire to and must never violate or, or must never violate? Uh, story three is all about the big idea. And the big idea is the central organizing uh, principle that binds everything we do together. And your organization may not have just one big idea. It might have multiple big ideas. But, and they all bind together in, in a, in a uh, story plex 
uh, that gives meaning. So religions are great for this, absolutely great for this. In fact, uh, there's a, a great quote from one of Apple's first marketing consultants back in the 1970s, Regis McKenna. And Regis was the personal marketing consultant to, uh, to Steve Jobs. And he used to say that great marketing takes its cues from great religion. And if you think of, and if you think about it, you know, like uh, religion. In order for religion to to uh, get more people into the religion's tent, you have to tell great stories. And it's not just one story; it is a series of stories, all that are all welded together, that merge together to form a story plex. And so we're in the business of telling that story plex stories. And you know, you have different paths, and to get to that central story of, in the case of Christianity, salvation. Uh, you know that that's what it is, right? And uh, in fact, all the all the big three, uh, if we say they're all Abrahamic religions, we go to Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, they all come from uh, that central uh, story of Abraham, right? And then they, they go in in different paths. But uh, ultimately, there's a storyplex for each one that binds them together in similarity, but also makes them different in the way of uh, interpretation and such. Uh, story four is all about the enemy we face. And the enemy we face is not necessarily a person. It can be, uh, you know, right now in the U.S., it's Hurricane Ida. And it's beating down on the coast, and that's the enemy we face. And enemy, and, but it can also be something that, uh, that we choose to overcome, right? Uh, or we, it's uh, something that we fight for or fight against. So we might fight for adult literacy. We might fight against childhood poverty. And so, but, but the whole point is the story needs a polarity, a polarizing uh, uh, outcome that we are either trying to get to or trying to fight against. And that's what gives that uh, story, that central conflict that uh, rallies people around it. Uh, story five, we talked about it, which is the mighty winds, which are the macro trends we talked about. Story six is the right-hand side of the equation. So the first four I five stories, if they're believable, there's an equal sign that says, "Well, if that's all true, if you all believe that, then this is the story, the journey we must undertake." And you know, at that point in time, all the all the switches go on, the lights all go on, and this is a green light in that direction. And then finally, story seven is about why we will win, and it's the it's a meta narrative that combines the previous six stories into a single telling. So summarized, but in a single telling with the addition of what I call keystone elements. And keystone elements, uh, you'll recall this from history, uh, are things like uh, superior technology. Uh, my God is better than your God. Uh, superior people, superior strategy. There's a whole bunch of this, hundreds of them. But this now allows your people to be guaranteed a win. Uh, one of the one of the stories in the book is all about Hernan Cortez, and Hernan Cortez in 1519 fled uh, Cuba, and uh, behind him was the governor of Cuba, who was his actual brother-in-law, and uh, Hernan wanted the conquest of the Mexican Empire, uh, the Aztec Empire, for himself to discover all the riches of uh, what is modern-day Mexico for himself. So he and 630 uh, men uh, mutinied. And they took some ships and they sailed to Veracruz in modern-day uh, Mexico. And uh, when he got there, he scuttled a couple of his ships and sent, one, I think, one or two home to with word that they were now landed and they're going inland. And be basically, his uh, his keystone was death ground. 
And he basically said, look, if we go back, you know, we're facing mutiny charges and probably we'll be hanging at the end of a rope. But in front of him were 5 million Aztecs and 200,000 square kilometers of Aztec-controlled land. And so it was a formidable thing. So death was certain one way. It may be certain the other way. But, you know, the, what we're sitting on right now, what we're standing on today is death ground. So there's no choice but to keep moving. And so over the course of the next two years, he allied with some other uh, Indian tribes in the region that also did not like the Aztecs. And in two short years, the entire Aztec empire fell to Cortez and his allied forces. And that's the power of story. Now, he was also aided by things like, you know, smallpox. Right. And and, you know, that devastated a lot of the a lot of the Indian tribes along the way, like great, great devastation, 90 percent casualties, you know, with the with the advent, with the, with the introduction of these epidemics. But uh, it is the, truly an example of, you know, when you tell the right story to spur your people forward, uh, that uh, amazing things can happen. And how would you recommend a, a real estate investor or a real estate professional like a real estate agent or professional services which you've worked in like a mortgage broker or how would you recommend that they use these stories where and when are the best sale, sales and marketing use of these i just wanted to take a moment to talk to you about strategy and how you can use a one-page document to really lay out the plans, the vision, the values, and the steps that you need to implement an effective strategy for your business. It's a free one-page sheet that you can download from my website. If you just go to the bottom of any of the podcast episodes in October of 2021, uh, then you'll see a form at the bottom of that uh, podcast episode, and you can download the form there. Enjoy. Back to the show. Well, the last thing you should do, you know, the old way of selling something is the features benefits type of model. Here's the feature. Here's the benefit. There's a value proposition benefit, uh, you know, buried in there and, and such, right? And, uh, you know, I've been in very poor sales presentation on real estate and the salesperson will walk in. Well, here it is. <laughs> they're counting on the prospect to make up their own mind. But, you know, when we take a let's take a look at something as simple as a, a home sale, for example. And so a home is not just a home, not just a home, not just a home. There's actually a lot of things that go on there. So the neighborhood has history. It has, uh, it has uh, a future. Uh, it has the kind of people living there. This is a professional neighborhood. This is a yuppie neighborhood, right? This is a new neighborhood. Uh, the home itself, is the home uh, based on a traditional type of a styling or is it based on some kind of New England motif? You know, there's so many aspects to the story. There's the technology aspects of the home itself. Uh, you know, variety of things. Uh, I live in a condo right now. And, uh, you know, within the condo itself, uh, there are more than a couple of uh, prominent Edmontonians that have lived here over the years. And that's part of the story. So why do they live here? Well, one of the reasons why is it's not a super expensive condominium, right? And this may be a second condo for some of them. It's not super expensive, but it is not uh, cheap either. And it's only like five minutes uh, drive down to downtown, the core of downtown, straight down Jasper Avenue. But now, so those are the functional value propositions there. 
So I can sell it on that kind of basis. You know, we're going to get a nice condo for you at a reasonable price point, but then I can sell it with, look, the chairman of this company lives here. <laughs> the CEO of that company lives here, right? You know, right? The board uh, of governors uh, had lived, you know, all these different types of things. And that's one of the aspects. Then I can go to the history of the neighborhood. And, you know, this is one of the, uh, this was literally the end of the line for a tram track in, uh, in the early 1910s and 1920s. This was the end of Edmonton at one point in time. And there was nothing beyond the, uh, the little, where the bridge is right now. And that was a whole different community. There's huge history behind it. And when you tell all these stories, Paul, the imagination lights up. And it becomes more than a bunch of bricks and HVAC systems, you know, and pavement and concrete. It becomes a story that comes alive, which supports the price that you are asking for in the sale listing. That's what it's all about. I can I can see that then if I'm looking at two, three, uh, two or three different properties, and then when you're recalling and say, well, what do we like about this? What do we like about that? And then all of a sudden you remember the history and the story. It builds yeah. that one up way more than than others. Now, right. now, you know, you still have to have the function, process, relationship aspects of your brand. You know, it's got to be functional for the purpose, right? Uh, you have to be, and the process might be things like, you know, is it close to my uh, what is it uh, office or family or whatever it is. A relationship might be who built this place, and you know, who am I buying it from? So those are three key elements of your brand, but. If all other things are equal now, you're comparing one property, all other things being equal to the other property. Now the story is what makes it come alive. One story will come. And you as that, whatever it is, developer, real estate agent, mortgage broker, that is your responsibility to install that story in all its grandeur in that, uh, in that prospect's head. And I talk when I talk about personal brand, I'm always talking to people about the the rational attributes and the emotional attributes, which is the same for a product or service. So what you're saying is, if you're looking at the the core pieces, those are the rational elements. But if all all things being equal, the decisions, the yeses or nos, are make, being made more emotionally. Well, and, the, and that's why story has such a a pull. Uh, so. All decisions. And I remember as a young man, you know, where really I've always been fascinated by sales psychology and marketing psychology. And I bought in very early to this idea that all decisions are emotionally based. Uh, and then you justify it with logic. You know, and so if you if you come to my LinkedIn profile, I'll usually put up a quote of the week. You know, what I, and I put up a different quote of the week. Right? And one of my quotes from last summer, this summer, was that the truth must be felt before it can be found. So if you think about something that you go into that you know nothing about, things like that, there's a moment there that it feels right or it feels wrong. You don't know why it feels right or it feels wrong, but you know that it is sitting in your gut and your heart in that manner, right? Now the brain kicks in and comes up with the logical rationale for why your heart and gut feel the way it is. I have another, uh, you know, basic idea is that all actions, human actions, uh, the catalyst for all human action is emotion. And the end result, you know, the outcome for those actions are also emotion. Okay. And, and so it might be fear that motivates you. 
to move forward, to do something, and then you you rest in that salvation or that security or that safety or whatever it is, right? But you are always catalyzed by some emotion first. Then you take a set of logical action steps to rest in a future emotion. And one of the examples that I use, and this is a real silly example, but it goes to a level of um, of thought process most people haven't done. And I will ask people, you know, do you have kids? Do you have kids? And, you know, a lot of people have kids. Yes, I do. And then I ask them the silly question, do you feed your children? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, they say, of of course I do. You know, that's a silly question. Of course I do. And I'm trying to illustrate a, a psychological principle here. And I say, why do you do that? And, you know, and they give me a lot of reasons, but ultimately, you know, it can go from things like, well, that's my responsibility as a parent. Uh, You know, it is, uh, I'm legally compliant. I'm legally obligated to do that. I wouldn't be a good parent unless I did this. And there's a whole bunch of reasons, but as you strip away layer from layer, from layer, from layer, it ultimately comes down to a set of beliefs that this is the right thing to do. Okay, and you know, and, and there's more than one instance you'll read in the paper that parents uh, do not uh, subscribe to the fact that they have any responsibility to their children. They're abused and uh, you know downtrodden on things like that. Why is that? Because they subscribe to a different belief, and you know, and regardless of what the legal framework is to compel them to do it, they're not doing it. That's why we have foster care systems and, and you know, and adoption systems. So this idea that we do things based on beliefs that give us emotional context for our actions. And that is what we've got to bring to the storytelling. And that's what we have to infuse into the rational explanation of, wow, this is a great construction, great neighborhood, uh, great investment. Are there any any insights or any suggestions that you have what people shouldn't do when it comes to storytelling? Yeah, I I do. I, I got the big one. You want to hear what it is? Yeah, absolutely. Don't bore them. <laughs> so, you know, so the last thing you want to do, hey, hey, Paul, want to hear my seven stories? You got you got an hour and a half? I'm going to give you on my whole seven stories. You don't want to do that. You, you know, the ultimate thing is sales is in large part, uh, although it's about delivering functional value propositions that are emotionally, you know, functionally relevant, emotionally significant. Uh, there's a significant amount of entertainment value associated with this as well. And uh, if you're doing it properly, you're going to deliver the value proposition that is so clearly evident as to how it'll be transformative to that prospect's life. They're going to get from point A to a transformative point B, positive gain, out of pain into gain, right? But along the way, uh, the entertainment factor is what allows you to embed that future state as a desired state in that prospect's head. And when I say entertainment in this context, I am saying, Storytell, tell stories. And, you know, it doesn't have to be funny stories. You know, it can be intriguing stories, curious stories. I didn't know that stories. And that's what embeds that into people's heads and makes that value problem, that boring, concrete value problems come alive into future potential. And I think you've given examples, but the stories don't need to be your stories. No, not they at all. Come from, they can come from history. They can come from anything. Yeah, not at all. So, uh, you know, here's a great one for you. Uh, there's a little town uh, north of uh, uh, Edmonton here, 
And uh, the legend, and I, I'm still looking for the, uh, what is it, uh, the verification of this, but it comes from pretty good sources. And uh, uh, the little town is called Fort Saskatchewan. And the story is apparently in, in the early 1900s, Winston Churchill came to Fort Saskatchewan because he had relatives up here who were farmers. And he had seriously considered staying in Canada. Uh, you know, and this is probably right after the Boer War. I think he served in the war at that time and such. And he he was seriously considering staying, not in Edmonton, but Fort Saskatchewan, <laughs> right? So it's just a little small little town up there. And, uh, you know, history would have changed considerably if we had Winston Churchill, gentleman farmer, uh, then we had him as a leader of uh, of the uh, uh, the war effort against you know the Nazi plague, right? So it's a, it's a completely different thing. So th- that is so intriguing to me that that was a potential up there, and you can weave those kinds of intrigue elements, which may, you can even declare, you know, it, it may be apocryphal, but wow, what if it was true? <laughs> That's right. kind of cool, right? Okay. I have a few uh, questions I like to always ask guests. Um, I'm sure you've got some good answers to these. So, uh, favorite personal brand or brand and why? Well, it's got to be Apple. For me, it's Apple. Uh, Apple is a 40, 45 year uh, story now. It is the world's most uh, valuable company. How did it get that way? And it's ultimately a, a story of sheer will. Yeah, it's a, it's a cult of personality to begin with in the way of uh, Steve Jobs. And you can see what happened to Apple when he was there, then what happened when he was not there for 10 years, and then what happened when he got back. And the transformation, he learned a lot in that 10 years in the wilderness as well. You know, and he learned a lot uh, of self-realization and just new ways of thinking about things. And when he came back through sheer will, sheer monumental effort of a personal sort, he transformed that company into uh, the basis of what is the world's most valuable brand now, and then the world's most valuable company for sure. Hmm. And it was great because you shared that story earlier about the uh, religion. Yeah. And, and when you look at jobs, Messiah. Apple, Apple was, and you said 10 years in the wilderness. And I said, I'm thinking religion, religion. So yeah. that's Messiah. You know, right. Messiah. That's a messianic story. Uh, recommended uh, business book or podcast? Uh, well, I'm going to recommend uh, this uh, little podcast called REI Branded. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by the way, I, I'm only half joking there. I, I'm I'm really enjoying this conversation with you. Uh, so I'm only half joking there, but uh, <laughs> this is good. Thank you. Uh, but uh, if you were to go to a uh, business book, uh, this is an old stalwart. I read it 20 years ago, and probably when I first read it, it was about 1993, 94, so almost 20 years ago. I got to think about it. maybe it's longer than 20 years now. It is. It's almost 30, right? And when I picked up this book, uh, it absolutely floored me. It uh, just floored me. I was riveted to the book, and it's called Influence: The Power, The Psychology of Persuasion. By a fellow by the name of Robert Cialdini. Cialdini, right? Right, I, I believe it's called. It, definitely, the book's title is "Influence," and I think the subtitle is "The Power, the Psychology of Persuasion, or the Power of Persuasion, Psychology of Persuasion." Right. Robert Cialdini. Wonderful. Uh, a current tool. I know you're very tech orientated. Um, so, a current tool or resource that you're enjoying using? Uh, believe it or not, Slack. 
<laughs> you know, uh, I, I am really, I, I'm, I was a latecomer to Slack. Uh, my, I have a little digital marketing company that uh, I'm a part owner in. And um, I do more of the perimeter work, uh, you know, legal accounting finance for that company. Anyways, uh, we're a Shopify marketing agency. Uh, but I've been getting more and more involved as we get older. And let me tell you, I'm in my uh, condo right now. And I can fire up Slack and I can get anybody on on a quick huddle or a video call. And it is slick. And I never understood the, uh, the what is it, um, the appeal of Slack prior to this. But now I get it. You know, and, it, and I always thought, why not just use uh, Outlook? Right. I had no clue what I was talking <laughs> about, right? Because someone didn't take the time to embed that story in my head. Uh, right. Interesting, right? Yeah, yeah. good point. And uh, you, you said you do a week, uh, weekly quote on, on LinkedIn. So what, what's your favorite quote? My absolute all-time favorite quote is from a theologian by the name of Dr. Howard Thurman. And Howard Thurman was an American theologian. He did a bunch of different things. But uh, when he was counseling young people as to their career choices, uh, he said the following, don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is more people who have come alive. And that is one of the things that, you know, as adults, you look back and, you know, uh, you I read a great little uh, uh, analysis, a psychological analysis where in your 20s and 30s, you're all full of aspiration and dreams and hopes and 30s, 40s, 50s. You know, you start to say it's a little tougher than what I thought it was going to be. But by the time your 50s happen, you know, you get out of that, you know, that uh, midlife crisis and you realize, you know what, I'm OK with this. This is, you know, I'm doing what I want to do. I'm happy with what I want to do. Uh, this is where my current station in life is. And this is something that I can find joy in in this uh, in this current moment. But along that way, it's about how you come alive in that process. And it's, it's about for you and not for society or your parental aspirations for yourself, you know, your peer group, whatever it is. And the 50s, and I'm in my late 50s now, uh, is definitely a time where I don't care what other people think of me anymore. <laughs> I just don't care. You know, and at this point in time, you know, it is about what I want to do. And I want to do a series of things. You know, I, I think I've got another 30 good years left in me. I hope so. And, uh, you know, it's not about uh, accumulation and things like that anymore. It is about things like helping uh, companies like my uh, little uh, digital marketing agency. And, and my, my uh, two partners are 20 years younger than me. Uh, you know, and I've got uh, other investments and other businesses, young people. And I love nothing better than, uh, than having young entrepreneurs come alive. You know, my, my ex-wife and I still sponsor a little... Uh, what is it? Uh, prize in entrepreneurship at the university and things like that. And, you know, really fun and enjoyable uh, uh, times to see these people striving to get forward with their new ideas. And is that, uh, is that why you've got involved with tech and, and you like that go to market work that you do in that sense? Are you referring to tech Edmonton or technology? Yeah, tech. Tech Edmonton. Yeah. Well, Tech Edmonton, absolutely. I love that. Now, Tech Edmonton uh, was recently wound down and merged into another group, right? They, okay. You know, they a lot uh, such. But I loved meeting entrepreneur after entrepreneur after entrepreneur. And, uh, you know, for the most part, most entrepreneurs really don't know what they got themselves into. <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, what they, what they don't get is, Paul, that they have given birth to a little baby dragon. 
And this baby dragon, you know, even in a small company needs five to $10,000 a month to eat every month, whether you bring in that cash or not. And the more you grow, the more it eats and the bigger it gets. And it has the power to devour you in the process. And so, you know, you need some of that blind enthusiasm to begin with. But then you need some structure and strategy and process along the way. And maybe a little bit of a helping hand from somebody who's been there, done that before, right? And so there's a, there's a real opportunity for that mentorship, but also a real opportunity for that investment as well uh, in nice. these new young companies. Nice. So how can people get hold of you, Kirian? What's the best well, way to get hold of you? There's a couple of ways to do that. Uh, the easiest way is to come to strategypeak.com. And uh, I've got over 100 blog posts there if you're interested in uh, marketing articles, things like that, a lot of practical stuff. But on the right-hand column, uh, you will see a download for the infographic for the book, 70 Essential Stories Charismatic Leaders Tell. And uh, you can even download a couple of chapters from that as well. Or you can go to amazon.com.ca, wherever you're at. And uh, you will be able to pick up uh, the Kindle copies. I think it's only three forty nine. You know, so it's very inexpensive. I just want to get the word out there and uh, get people to start using the uh, the structure. But I'll tell you what I'll do, Paul. For the first uh, five of your listeners that tell me that they heard me on your show, I will send them a free uh, copy, a Kindle copy of the book. Nice. Thank you very much. That's very good of you. Uh, wonderful. Any final words, parting words of wisdom about uh, essential stories? Or You're, You have to recognize that we're all in the storytelling business. It's the only way we can communicate with emotional impact. And because emotion is the foundation of all new activity, all new action, you know, that's, that is the catalyst. There's, a, there's a, a physical process in the between to get to that final end state where you rest in another emotional state, right? Whatever that is. And so if you don't recognize that stories are the best way to embed that future potential, uh, that future transformative state, you're leaving a lot of power on the table. And right now in this kind of economy, you know, your consumers are very well informed. You need all the power that you can get. Great advice. And, and thank you for sharing so much today. And I'm sure the audience is going to found this extremely powerful and useful. So thank you, Kieran. Uh, have yourself a fantastic day. Paul, thanks for having me on your show. Well, what did you think? Was that fantastic? Did it give you some ideas and actions that you can take right now to build your business and real estate personal brand? So what's stopping you? Get to it. And if you're wondering where your real estate personal brand currently stands and some steps to make it more brandtastic, you can download our free real estate personal brand checklist at reibranded.com forward slash checklist. That's reibranded.com forward slash checklist. Thank you for listening and have yourself a brandtastic day.